Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Step. Piki mai kake mai. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance Tene. Tonight's show is set in the South Island mountains. Later on, we'll find out how New Zealand glaciers have survived the warm summer, or not. But first, Takahe. Takahe are one of New Zealand's giant, flightless, and threatened birds. The current population is just 347, including 100 breeding pairs. Now that's twice the number there was a decade ago, which is great news. The wild population of Takahe lives in Fiordlands, Murchison Mountains, just across the lake from Teano. About 40 birds there carry backpack radio transmitters. The signals from those are regularly counted from a plane using a system known as Sky Ranger. Then, every three or so years, the Takahe recovery team also spends weeks on foot in the hills to carry out a population census to confirm that aerial data and find out if the population is going up. Or down. The Murchison Mountains, or Murchies as they are often known, are out of bounds to the public. So I was delighted late last year to be allowed to join Rangers Glenn Greaves and Nicolette Brown to count birds in historic Takahe Valley. So we're looking for sign.、Uh, Takahe sign can can stick around for up to two years before it breaks down fully,、um, but we can tell how fresh the sign is by how much green colour is left in it. So that's both faecal matter and also. Uh, feed sign, so they they feed on tussocks and salmisia and things like that. They have a very distinctive way of feeding. Do you want to tell me about that? Yeah, so with the tussock, they snip or they pull the tillers out and just eat the very base, the the um the sweet base of, of the tussock tiller, and they leave it in, in piles on the ground next to the tussock. So we can we can tell by that how whether there are likely to be birds in the territory. So we're looking for feeding sign. We're looking for droppings. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing we'll be doing is is using callback equipment as well. So once we enter a territory, we'll we'll play a territorial call, and if there are birds in here, they'll generally respond to that, being quite quite aggressive, quite territorial. Now you've got a dog in here with us as well. Would you like to introduce me to the dog? <laughs> This is Yuki. She's an eleven-year-old wire-haired pointer. Um, she's been working on the program for about ten years now. Unfortunately, it's likely to be her last trip. She's getting getting a bit old, but this is a fairly easy trip for her to be doing. So we'll be using our eyes. She'll be using her nose. Exactly. Yeah. So once we come onto some green sign, then we'll use the dog to actually locate the birds, try and find the nests. Okay, I've got my sun hat on. We should crack into it. Sounds good. Now that's the sound of snow under my boots. Although we have a perfect weather day, an earlier storm dumped lots of snow in Fiordland, and it hasn't all melted. But mostly, we're going to be crashing through tussock and scrub, looking for birds that I've been told will be surprisingly hard to see, even though they're large and blue with a bright red beak. We're heading over to an area where there used to be a nest, and Nikki Glen and I have divided up the hillside between us. And I've dropped the furthest down, and my job is to play takahe calls. So I'll just get out the little loudspeaker system and give a spray of calls. The others have just radioed in to say they found some fresh sign, and it would be quite good if those birds、uh, gave themselves away by calling back to this recorded call. 
way off in the distance, Glen, we can hear two tankahay. It's <laughs> pretty cool. It's exactly what we want. We found quite a lot of green sign in here, and we weren't sure who it was. Um, so we've tried the transmitters, but it's an ex um, burwood bush, captive red bird. It's been released a couple of years ago. So she's a she. Does she have a name? Because I've noticed that some of your birds have names. <laughs> they all do. Yeah, this one's Timaka. No, it's nice to find um, birds in this territory. Last time this territory was checked in 2014, there was nothing seen, so it's, it's definitely positive. Takahe Valley in the Murchison Mountains is where Takahe were dramatically rediscovered on the 19th of November 1948. A small party led by Dr Geoffrey Orbell climbed up from Lake Teano to the lake that now bears his name. Joan Watson is the last surviving member of that group and here she is with her recollection of that momentous day. And we came out just by the stream with the, at the outlet onto a flat area which was covered by boxwood and snowgrass. Snowgrass was deep, it was right up to our waist, it was huge. Wonderful cover for birds. And Doc said, follow me and don't talk and only hand movements. So we walked only a very short distance through this snowgrass and um, Doc crouched and put, put his finger up to say he could see one bird. So we were all crouching and peering and through the snowgrass I caught a glimpse of the bright red beak. Then he put two fingers up and there was a, a mate, a pair. So with that... He gave us orders quietly to put the netting in a semicircle round and then quietly and very slowly. The birds weren't disturbed at all. We were so cautious and we slowly drove them into the net. I looked down, there was the bird, and I thought, I have to do my thing. <laughs> so I crouched down and grabbed it. I was almost throttling it, <laughs> but I wasn't going to let it go. It was well trapped in the netting. And somebody came along and helped to release it. So when you had that one in your hands, yes. what were you thinking? Apart from, I'm not going oh, to this is it. I was overwhelmed. We've got it. You know, I couldn't believe it. And it's a beautiful bird. It's a brilliant bird. And I agree, Joan. They are indeed a beautiful bird. Now, that rediscovery of the Takahe made world headlines. So what's happened in the 60 years since this giant flightless rail was rediscovered? Here's Glenn Greaves again as we take a break from our modern-day Takahe hunt in the aptly named Takahe Valley. It's the longest-running conservation programme in New Zealand. It's, it's had a lot, of, a lot of research and a lot of effort gone in. So following rediscovery, a lot of people spent time in here trying to figure out how big the population was and what was happening to the population. They quickly found out that the population was, was in quite steep decline. The thought was at the time that that competition for food from deer was, was the main issue for them, so there's been a lot of effort put into deer control since that time, and that, that has made a big difference to the habitat quality. On top of that, there's been a real effort to, to increase the productivity of, of the site. They've tried crop dressing some of the valleys. You mean putting fertiliser on it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's amazing. They, they tried to increase the fertility of the, of the tussock. They tried that for a couple of years, but it didn't seem to make much difference. They've also done a lot of stoat trapping in here, which has increased to the point now where we've got 3,500 traps across the peninsula, over 50,000 hectares. So that, that's a huge effort done by DOC, and that started in a small way back in the 1970s. 
So the biggest issue for the birds in here, aside from the natural mortality, is, is stoke predation. Now that we've got deer under control. But we're finding now with, with 3,500 traps in, it does make a huge difference. Do the stoats kill just the chicks or can they kill adult takahe as well? No, they can definitely kill adult takahe, which is pretty amazing given the size difference between stoats and takahe. They'll attack the bird when it's on, on a nest or, or on a roost, jump on the back of the bird and bite it in the neck and hang on until the bird is dead, which is it's a really sad thing. And only one stoat can do a lot of damage. We think it's probably a learned behaviour. So one stoat can walk down a valley and kill up to half a dozen takahe we've seen in the past. What about really snowy winters in here? Is that a problem for the birds? Yeah, absolutely. So this, this isn't ideal habitat for takahe, but the snowy winters and the isolation here also had a positive effect in that the stoats took a long time to come here. So what have the numbers in here in the Murchison's been like over the last 60 years? Through the 50s and 60s, people thought there was up to 400 birds in here, but that was just based on a flyover looking at, at available habitat. And, and just saying, oh, there's this space for a pair there and another pair over there. But all the foot surveys tended to indicate that the population has, has peaked at around the 160 to 180 mark. We've never seen it higher than that. In 2007, it, it dropped well below um, 100. What caused that? That was the stoke plague. Yeah, so we lost 40% of the birds in here. Um, 40%, in 40% in one year? 40% of the population, yeah. Amazing. Wow. Yeah, so uh, luckily we, Doc at the time, had a, had a reasonably small trap network in the centre of, of the population, so around Takahe Valley, where we are now, and Point Burn, Mystery Burn and the Snag, we had 1,200 traps in this area, over 10,000 hectares. The birds within that area, um, they suffered about 10% mortality. Yeah, and it, it really showed that the trapping did make, make a big difference. So since then, the trapping's been expanded to the whole of the Murchison Mountains. I'm Alison Balance, and in this special hour-changing world feature, I am finding out about one of New Zealand's iconic rare birds, the giant flightless takahe. I'm in Fiordland's Takahe Valley with dock rangers Glenn Greaves and Nicolette Brown and conservation dog Yuki. So we've split up and are walking in a line across the, the flat tussock area. Chances are, even with the wind in the wrong direction, that Yuki the dog will find the bird first. Oh, and they've both stopped and they're gesturing at me, so I'll head across over there because that means they've got a bird and I can just see the dog and she's pointing really fixedly into a tussock bush. found the female on a nest which is really exciting there's at least three birds here which is quite good interesting yeah fantastic so it's probably the the juvenile from last year they often stay with the parents and help them rear the next next chicks in the following breeding season so we've heard the male calling further down the valley and we heard a bird rustling behind us and then saw found the female on the nest so what we're going to do is candle the eggs and just check they're fertile so what does that involve you've got a black hood there yeah, we've got a, um, a black hood which will block out all the light and then um, we've got a LED torch that we hold against the egg and we can tell how old it is. You shine the light through the egg. Exactly, yep. She's obviously been sitting for quite a while. The, the latrine, the pile of poo outside the, the nest is quite large so we should see quite a lot of development. 
So we've got two eggs there? Yeah, we do, yep. So Glenn's just got them under the candling hood now. He's just using a high-powered torch just to establish their age. Fantastic. It's another two fertile eggs. They're 15 and 17 days old. Um, yeah, lots of good, strong veins and lots of movement from the embryo. So Nikki's just going to put the eggs back in the nest and we'll shift away quietly. Mum's just sitting off the nest not too far away. Generally the female incubates during the day and the male at night. So they have a change over around 7pm and 7am. Um, but when they've got a, a helper from last year's clutch, um, it tends to mess things up a little bit so you can find any bird on the nest at any time. Which is really good training for the new bird. So how old will that new bird be when it breeds? Uh, usually three. Um, they can breed at, at two, but they're not usually successful. They're quite often infertile, or um, are not very good at incubating at that age anyway. It tends to take them a while, to, a bit of practice before they get it right. And those eggs were doing really, really well. To get through to that stage, it's looking really promising that they'll, they'll hatch quite happily. Now you've exported a lot of birds in here, in the sense that for a long time you were gathering fertile eggs in here, taking them out to a captive rearing centre? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Burwood Bush Take Centre, uh, which is just down the road from Tiana towards Queenstown, that was set up in about 1985. Part of what people were finding in here during the 70s and 80s was that Takahe almost always lay two eggs in a nest, but the second chick struggles to survive, and that's because of the harsh conditions in here. So it was thought, well, that, that second egg is, is wasted, so why not bring it back, artificially incubate, hand rear with puppets at Burwood, and then foster on to resident pairs at the, at the Burwood Takei Centre. And that, that went on until about 2011. Uh, following yeah, spending a year at Burwood with the foster parents, they got exported mainly back into the Murchison Mountains to boost the population here, but also allowed us to populate sanctuary sites around the country like Tiritiriamatangi and Morotapu and places like that. So you've got Takahe now scattered across quite a few islands. How are they going on the islands? Uh, it depends on the island. It's quite quite varied. Uh, the problem that we have with a lot of our islands is that, that the habitat is regenerated back to native bush. So that's excluding Takahe from the, the prime habitat. So it's only really through really intensive habitat maintenance or management that they're managing to hang on to their, their birds. So we're always on the lookout for new sites, but we, we find that the birds do best where it's cold and damp, not so much subtropical. So our best performing site is actually um, down here in the, in the bottom of the South Island rather than up north. So you've got plans for an ambitious relocation coming up though? Mm, absolutely. So we're in a really good position where, where we're making an excess of 40 to 50 birds per year and we're running out of room with the sites we've currently got. The Murchison Mountains is nearly full and as our sanctuary sites are also. So we need to find a new home and the focus of the program really is now restoring um, wild populations back, back where Takea used to be pre-human times. So we've been looking for quite a while and come up with the Kaharangi National Park in the Gulen Downs as, as the preferred site. And the reason for that is because it's, it's very similar to the Murchison Mountains in terms of habitat, but the climate is a lot more benign. So the site that you're moving them to in Kaharangi National Park, that's already got a trapping program underway there? Yeah, absolutely. So in New Zealand, uh, they've, they've put a number of A24 traps throughout Which the Which are those self-resetting traps? Exactly, yep, the good nature traps. They also do quite regular 1080 drops across, across the site. Um, so tracking tunnels have shown that rat and stoat numbers are very, very low at that site. In fact, a lot lower than what we see in Fiordland.
The establishment of a Takahe population at Goulin Downs on the Hefe Track in northwest Nelson was meant to kick off in August 2017. The Takahe team had got as far as collecting birds from the Murchison Mountains when a long spell of bad weather halted proceedings. The Takahe were temporarily taken to the Burwood Bush Takahe Centre. And by the time the weather improved, they'd decided they liked it there so much that they were starting to breed. So the relocation was put on hold, and the birds have just spent the summer enjoying a large expanse of red tussock protected by a long, predator-proof fence. Ranger Nicolette Brown manages Burwood Bush, and she's off to check in on the birds that will now move to their new home in late March 2018. We've got a pair just over here. Lily and Rerahu. So what can you tell me about them? They were one of our breeding pairs, a really successful breeding pair down in our main pens and we've had quite a few chicks off them. Um, They're at a great breeding age, they're about 12 years old so that means that they're at the peak of their breeding so they'll give the site a really good test because they are good breeders. If they don't breed there's going to be questions asked as to is this an ideal breeding place because we know these are good breeders. So somewhere out there in that waving tussock, it's quite like the Murchisons. We don't have snow tussock here so it's mainly red tussock so it's a little different but it's a good practice ground for them. There's some lovely beech forest on the other side there. Is that important? Yeah, it is. Um, in the wintertime, the birds, um, obviously there's a lot of snow on the tussock land, so they can't feed in the tussock lands. So the birds will actually drop down to the forest line. Um, and there's a food source in there called um, hypolepis or summer fern, which they um, have in the wintertime that they'll, they'll grub up and eat those roots. And it's quite a very high calorific food for them and sort of keeps them going through the winter. Also, they get the shelter from the, um, the snow as well. So it is important, yes. So young Takahe chicks have to be trained to feed on all these different food types? They do, yeah. To train them to eat the hypolepis, they have to dig for it. That's not sort of a natural behaviour for Takahe. They usually, they're pulling tillers and eating tussock. So we have a little training pen for them, which we um, move them up with known, um, we call them trainer birds, adult birds that have eaten hypolepis before, and we leave them in this small space for about three days without much food so that they watch mum and dad eating this food and that they finally get the idea and get into it themselves. So how many birds in total have you got here at the moment? Um, we have 90 here at the moment. And 30 of those? are those ones that are going to Goulin Downs. That's right, yeah. And so who are the other 60? The 60, so we've got 20 breeding pairs at the moment. They are in the um, about one hectare breeding pens, which are a bit further down the hill, um, not quite so um, harsh as up here. And they have one to two juveniles with them, so they're last year's chicks who are helping them raise this year's chicks. And most of them have either eggs or chicks themselves at the moment, so small, small takahe, yeah. So I keep hearing you guys refer to it as the takahe farm, so you really are in the business of churning out baby takahe. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, and it's run exactly the same. We have to um, monitor their food, we have to monitor hygiene. It's exactly like a farm, yeah. And a lot of those farm chores for the breeding pairs fall to ranger Sam Holtain. So today we're going to be um, feeding all of the tarks and while we're there we'll probably stick around and see who comes out and uh, see if we can count or hear chicks, um, which would be very exciting. And um, sort of keeping an eye out to see who doesn't come out as well to see whether our females are still on eggs. So cleaning the pond and that involves a broom. The Takahe pairs each have their own pen because... Quite frankly, they don't like close neighbours. But they do like water. Sluicing out all of the water out of a pond that looks a bit like a satellite dish. 
anything to keep the water there really. Okay. So I try and ring the dinner bell, get someone to come out. But normally they'd come running if they hear the dinner oh, bell. Yeah. Now what are the pellets you feed them? The pellets are a special mix um, that we get from Massey University. But it's not the main food source for these birds, they're still no. mostly eating tussock? These guys especially because they've got chicks are really after high protein stuff, so they do a lot of digging for roots. Um, and they do catch and feed the chicks and vertebrates, don't they? Yeah, I think so. Oh, here comes someone. Hey, Jack. Yeah, come on. Lots of clacking of the hopper as they push the lid up, have a bit of a scoff, let it drop. <laughs> you find there's distinct uh, kinds of eating as well. Some are peckers, so he's more of a pecker. And then you get some that are scoopers, <laughs> who just sort of scoff as much as possible in a big sort of shovel-like motion into the pellets. <laughs> Which is pretty entertaining. And then you've got others who want to they grab a bunch and sort of drop it on the ground and then eat it off the ground. <laughs> so it's quite entertaining. <laughs> so who we've got at the hopper? Um, at the hopper is Hopi, and I think the bird behind them is probably Flock, and Raina will be off with the chick. What do you like about working with Takahe? I love listening to them. <laughs> I love the sound that they make, probably more than anything. And they're so damn colourful. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in the Murchison Mountains... Time has passed, we've climbed up towards the head of Takahe Valley and what have you got in your arms at the moment, is that a juvenile? Yeah, this is a juvenile, or a yearling now. This will be their chick from last summer, so it's obviously stayed with the parents and is likely to be helping them with this year's nest. So Nikki's putting leg bands on? Mm-hmm. Yep, so we have three colour bands and a metal band with a, a five-digit number on it that's unique to the bird and we'll put a transmitter on it as well. So our, our current transmitter sample is, is biased towards uh, captive reared birds and released birds. So we want to, to increase our wild sample. So this is one of the birds when you fly the Sky Ranger and just see who's still alive. Mm. It'll be part of that cohort of birds? Yeah, so our target is to have a minimum of 40 birds. Do you want to describe the colour of its feathers to me? Because it's quite gorgeous. It's almost power shell-like. Yeah, it is. I guess it's um, several shades of blue going into green. Greeny turquoise. Okay, so you've done everything you need to do with it? Yep. Got a transmitter on, banded, weighed. Yeah. Got a good weight? Really good weight for a, for a sub-adult. Yeah, 2.4 kilos, so it's obviously been in a good territory and has good parents. So you know who one of the parent birds is? Yeah, Parker. 
a male and the mother is unbanded. So another wild bird. Okay, so we'll let can go, go back to mum and dad. Yeah. Heddles off through the tussock. What a great two days. How has our overall bird tally gone? I've lost count of it. <laughs> <laughs> We've had 17 birds seen or handled on this trip. Um, and that's up from 13 that was seen last time in 2014. So if things are going really well, how many birds might you expect to find here in the Murchison Mountains? Well, our estimate based on that, that transmitter sample of 40-odd of birds um, suggests we should have around 135 birds in here. In terms of predators, is there um, any mast years on the horizon? No, well, this has been a mast year just, just past. Um, stoat numbers at the moment are the highest they've ever been since, since we've been running our, our trap lines in here. So now is danger period for Takahe. Uh, so far we've only lost possibly two known birds to predation, which is really good. It shows the trapping is, is likely making having a big, big effect. Predator-free 2050 is going to be a really big thing for you if we manage to pull it off. It'll be fantastic. The big uh, block for our, our program is finding safe places to put the birds. We know how to make a lot of takahe, but we don't really have a home to put them. What we really need is wet tussock subalpine areas and lowland grassland areas. At the moment, most of those areas are full of cats and ferrets and stoats, and takahe don't do well with those species about. So getting rid of them would be fantastic for the program. Thanks, Glenn. That was Glenn Greaves from the Department of Conservation. And we also heard from Doc Rangers Nicolette Brown and Sam Holtain. That story also featured Joan Watson, one of the team that rediscovered Takahe in Fiordland 60 years ago. Joan's maiden name was Telfa, and that final young Takahe, which Glenn fitted with a radio transmitter, has been named in her honour Telfa. Nice one. There's a link to Joan's full interview and some photos from the trip on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and after the unscheduled summer break at the Burwood Bush Takahe farm 30 birds will be released on the Hefe track in northwest Nelson 18 early next week and 12 a month later weather permitting now a snowy spring in the South Island was of course followed by New Zealand's hottest summer on record so what does that mean for the country's glaciers Niwa has just finished its annual snow line survey and here's Andrew Laurie to tell us about it. A team from Niwa and Victoria University Wellington got in a series of small aircraft and we did the end of summer snow line survey across the Southern Alps. And what we do is we take oblique photographs of 50 index glaciers that are representative of what's going on with the snow and ice at the top of the Southern Alps. How many glaciers do we have in the Southern Alps? There's more than 3,000 that um, have been catalogued by Trevor Chin, who's our colleague who who, um, led the flight for many years and who still comes on the flight with us. He undertook a glacier inventory survey in the late 1970s that showed that there was more than 3,200 unique glaciers. It's a lot. When you're doing this great scenic flight, flying around taking photographs of 50 glaciers, why are you doing that? From year to year, um, our climate varies, and one of the reasons why we're, we're doing this is to actually look at how climate variability and long-term climate change affect the snow and ice resources of New Zealand. So basically, how much ice is there still in the Southern Alps? Yeah, that's right. So we can, we can track those changes um, from, from year to year by looking at things like the snow line and, and estimating the volume change um, for these, these index glaciers or the, these indicative glaciers that sort of correlate more, more broadly to the wider ice mass of the Southern Alps. 
Well, we'll get to the longer picture in a minute, but obviously the question on my mind is we've just had the hottest summer on record. So what are our glaciers looking like? Quite simply put, they're looking in pretty sad shape for this year. Um, you can definitely tell that there are some impacts of having warmer, much warmer than normal temperatures, and in fact, record warm temperatures for this summer. And our previous work that we've done, again, in conjunction with researchers at Victoria University Wellington, have, have shown this connection between what's going on in the central Tasman Sea in terms of those sea surface temperatures that are sitting offshore and how those get advected onto land and up, up to altitude. And the basic connection is that if you have warmer sea surface temperatures in and around the Tasman Sea, you typically also have similarly warm temperatures um, on land and, and up, to, up, to, up to elevation. And so, so it's not, not surprising that with this record warm marine temperatures, the marine heat wave, that we've had quite a strong effect on the glaciers. There's been a lot more melting than normal? When we have warmer than normal um, summers, what happens is that it really reduces the potential for any of the snow that fell in the previous winter period to be retained through the summer and, and into next year. And, and, and that's really important because if you want to build a glacier or sustain a glacier, it's kind of like having a piggy bank. There has to be some reserves in the piggy bank from year to year, and you have to build up those savings. When you start peeling through whatever you've earned this year, and then you start dipping into the savings, i.e. the, the previous year's um, snowfall, um, which, is, which is compressed, and then also ice um, underneath that, that, then the glaciers start to decline. And what we're seeing this year is that 30 out of the 50 glaciers had snow lines that were above the top of the mountain. So nothing from last year was kept. And, and in all likelihood, they're, they're starting to dip well into their savings from a, a record warm year. So you're really recording what the, le- the level of snow is that you can see? Yeah, the level of, of snow that, that, um, that fell from last season. So, so what we see when we've gone up this year is that um, you know, you're getting... Uh, dirty, dirty snow and ice, and um, in many cases, no indication that any of the snow that fell last year has been retained. Any plus sides in this at all? Uh, no, <laughs> I actually don't see any benefit of what's occurred this year. Um, all I, all I can see from a year like this is it's incredibly detrimental for our glaciers and our snow and ice. And um, the, the real concern is that we don't know what the future is going to hold. But if the dice become loaded towards having more years like this in the future, as a result of a combination of say natural climate variability, and, and also anthropogenic forcing on, on the climate, i.e. warmer temperatures because we're pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. That's going to be very detrimental for our glaciers. How many years have these surveys been going for? In continuous form, really, um, from, from, say, the late 1970s, 1978 was the first year where, where a majority of the glaciers were captured. So, so I consider that our, our first real year. And it's also the baseline from which parts of the snow line are set. So um, essentially 40 years, there was a one year where only one of the glaciers um, within that span was, was taken, and that was the transition between the DSIR and, and, and the Crown Research Institutes. So we've got a pretty continuous record across that time period. And why did Trevor Chin choose the glaciers that he chose? Trevor's a really clever man, okay? And in New Zealand, uh, much, much like the quote for, for Ernest Rutherford, we don't have the money, so we've got to think. And so Trevor had a very small amount of money, to do some, some work to try to determine something about the glaciers um, and monitor them from year to year. Mass balance measurements um, in, their, in their classical sense are, are very time um, consuming and very expensive to do. It requires people who are experts in glaciology to be on the ground taking measurements with snow stakes um, throughout the year to see how um, those glaciers are changing. So you can imagine with a t- within a state like New Zealand being so big and glacierized across a very, very long expanse, that that's, that's 
next to impossible to do. So he thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up in a plane and I'm going to measure something that tells us about the glacier's health during the year. And he decided, okay, that, well, the end of summer snow line can tell you at least something about how the glacier has gone during the course of, of what's called the, the glacier hydrology year, which basically starts in April when we start getting our, our snowfalls into winter. And it ends at, at um, the, the end of the following summer in, in March. So you've got to do these surveys as late in summer as possible, but before the next lot of snows start falling. That's right, and it's really pushing it in some cases. I mean, as you know, we get we get a lot of extropical systems that start to impinge on New Zealand between February and March, and um, quite often these beautiful ridges of high pressure that we have during you know the months of February, that those types of windows and their persistence, um, you know, it can be somewhat questionable um, in March when these systems are barreling down on us. So. It's it's really um, a bit of a gamble. Um, we, we're ready to go at sort of a day's notice. We start we start looking probably about three weeks before the end of February about okay, well, when's our first window going to happen? And it's always a bit of a, a dice roll. Fortunately, the forecasts are getting a lot better. We had a great um, a great forecast given to us by um, by Ben Knoll, who's a forecaster here at NIWA, and um, and we were able to hit a really nice two day window and we captured all the glaciers that we wanted to. Now, why do glaciers matter? Okay, I mean, that's, that's really important. I'm chatting to, to Brian Anderson about this, and Brian is, is um, one of the foremost experts on glaciology in, in New Zealand, and, and we, were, we were chatting about this, and um, the phrase has been used before that, that these glaciers are our water towers up at the top of the Southern Alps, and that, that's a very good analogy. And, um, and, and when they trickle down and, and feed um, river systems that flow into, into Canterbury and, and into Westland, I mean, that's incredibly important for water resource management, so our, our water supplies. Um, it's important, of course, for, for agriculture. Um, it's important for the power generation that we have for New Zealand as well. So, I mean, if you think about the, the hydro network that is um, uh, the scheme that's on the eastern side of, of the Southern Alps, I mean, every drop of water that goes into those particular schemes um, is generated eight times, so to speak, um, because of how that how that power power scheme is connected. So, that that just doesn't stay on the South Island. It's actually um, power that's that's actually transmitted up into the North Island, right? So it's incredibly important for um, supporting our infrastructure and our society. Thanks, Andrew. That was Andrew Laurie from Niwa, and he says we shouldn't forget the importance of glaciers for ecology as well, and also that if we have a drought, you can think of the ice as the reserve tank. You can hear more from Drew on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. And there are some nice photos from Fjordland there as well. Thanks for your company. Catch you next week. But for now, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.